You're listening to the Unveiling Mormonism podcast from PursueGod.org. Join pastors Ross Anderson and Brian Dwyer every Monday as they pull back the curtain on LDS history, culture, and theology. Find more resources to continue the conversation at PursueGod.org slash Mormonism. All right, today, Ross, we're going to tackle... We're going to go into greater depth on a topic we've already covered a little bit, because I think when a lot of people hear about Mormonism these days, their first thought is probably polygamy, right? People are probably watching the shows. Uh, there's all kinds of stuff out there in in uh, in popular culture, and it probably sort of bugs the average mainstream Mormon, because the mainstream Mormons, you know, the people that are our neighbors in Utah, they don't think of polygamy when they think of their LDS faith. And I'm sure it kind of bugs them that the rest of the world, that's what they think of. So let's talk a little bit about the uh, sort of a short history of polygamy, where it started for the Mormons, and even really where it ended, at least for the mainline Mormons. Yeah, true. Because um, even though it's a big part of the LDS history, and they're historical heritage, the current Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, I think, tries to downplay uh, their polygamous roots. And certainly it's not authorized within the LDS Church today. But it's certainly part of their history and their culture, going all the way back to Joseph Smith. And the origins of polygamy really start with Joseph Smith himself. Okay, so let's, let's before we get into his, his part in the whole thing, Ross, let's just clarify that for people who are listening who might not understand what you just said. So when the average person out there hears the word Mormon, they think that all Mormons are the same. But really, there are, there's a sort of a spectrum when it comes to Mormons, right? There's what we would call today the sort of the mainline Mormons. These are the, the people that, uh, again, our neighbors here in Utah. But then there's what, what, what even, even those Mormons would call fundamentalist Mormons. Why don't we start with that? Because we're going to end with that as well. But why don't we start with that? What's the difference, and what kind of numbers are we talking when we're talking about Mormons who are fundamentalists and Mormons who are mainline? Yeah, the the, uh, idea is that the mainstream Mormon church has a number of offshoot groups uh, that have spun off at different points in time in history over various reasons, and a number of them spun off over the practice of polygamy. And so they're, again, as you mentioned, they're known as the fundamentalist Mormons, because they're the ones who really think they see themselves as really upholding everything Joseph Smith taught. They see themselves as really the true uh, successors of Joseph Smith. It's hard to gauge how many there are because they tend to live in secrecy. There might be 40 or 50,000, I've heard estimates higher than that, around um, the Western Uh, North American continent. Most of them live in the West, in the U.S., some in Canada, some in Mexico. But they all go back to or find their their roots in Joseph Smith and the original practice of polygamy, which the mainstream Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints today has um, largely moved away from. So we're talking, yeah, just to be clear, we're talking thousands or tens of thousands at the most when we're talking about fundamentalists today versus the mainline Mormon church, which is, you know, what the, they claim, the numbers they claim are what, 10 million, 11 million, uh, More like, like that? Uh, approaching, well, in the U.S., it's, uh, they're probably approaching in uh, 16 or 17 million globally. 
Yeah, so so this is right. So the the mainline Mormons would call this kind of like a splinter group, right? Is this is this how yeah. they would see, you know, the polygamists now as they would say, No, that's not the real Mormonism anymore, right? Whereas the right. fundamentalists, the smaller group, they would say, No, this is the real Mormonism, right? Exactly, exactly. So the mainstream church but everybody's most familiar with the Church of Mitt Romney and and and, and so forth. Um, they don't even like the term Mormon fundamentalists because in their mm. mind it applies that there's some kind of a, a link. Um, well, you can deny it all day long, but there is a link. The link is Joseph Smith. Yeah, and I think it'll be good to for people who are listening, you know, even Mormons who are listening who might be interested in this, to really take a hard look at the facts and just honestly say, like, which one is more faithful to original Mormonism? And we'll let, we'll let the listeners decide for themselves. So, Ross, let's start with Joseph Smith and the origins of polygamy. So where did this whole, where did this whole concept of polygamy start for the Mormons, and how does Joseph Smith tie into it? Well, it started with Joseph Smith, and Joseph Smith saw himself, understood himself as being the prophet of the restoration, the restoration of original Christianity. And so he, he would go back. Um, restoration is a theme throughout all of the, his, his activity, theological and practical activity. He would go back and seek to restore what he felt like were biblical practices. And so he would, but he did it, he did it without discernment and really without um, any clear-cut interpretive basis, it's hermeneutical basis, we would call it, and without really looking at the context of the things that he... So he sees in the Old Testament, ah, Abraham, he has Sarah, and then he, then he brings on Hagar as a concubiner. Oh, David, David had all these wives and concubines, Solomon even more. And so Joseph Smith is, is thinking through his restoration, and he's asking questions like, well, why don't we do that today? And so framed in terms of a faithful Latter-day Saint perspective, they would say Joseph Smith began asking God why we don't practice uh, polygamy or plural marriage, as they call it also, why we don't practice that today. And so it, it began by his, him thinking about things like that um, and begin, beginning to move into an openness um, and, and beyond an openness to an outright uh, practice and almost, in some senses, a um, a mandate for plural marriage. Now we'll get into all of that, and we'll actually get into a biblical response to this. By the way, at the very end, so listeners, hang on till the very end because Ross, I think it's only fair that we address those questions that Joseph Smith had, like why why do we not practice polygamy if polygamy was a thing in the Old Testament? So we'll save that. That'll be sort of. Uh, That'll be the, the cherry on top at the end. But before we do that, I think we should talk about how it actually played out in Joseph Smith's life. We talked a little bit about this in an earlier episode, but I think we could get into greater detail now. So Joseph Smith, let's just start with this question. How many wives did Joseph Smith have then at the end by, by the time of his death? Right. It's a little hard to figure out because it was being done in secret. And so some of them, there are, there's not always documentation there's not like a wedding certificate for any of them, but there were there are journal accounts and there are you know what people um, wrote down and so forth in, over time. And so, given the, the sometimes a lack of evidence, 
Um, different scholars put the number at somewhere up to from 40 to 49. So somewhere in the 40s in terms of the number of, of, of women that Joseph Smith was, um, to use the LDS language, that he was sealed to. Is this true that Fanny Alger was the first, was the first supposed um, second wife that he took? Yeah, the fir- uh, of course he married Emma Smith in the Correct, 1820s. that was his first wife. But That was his first but, wife, his legal wife. And um, right. Fanny Alger in 1833, um, there's two perspectives on that. Um, she, she was a 16-year-old maid uh, living with the Smiths, kind of helping them take care of their household and kids and stuff like that. But there's two perspectives on this. Some people, including a number of prominent Latter-day Saints who are contemporaries of Joseph Smith, just looked at it and saw it as simply an adulterous affair. Hmm. But others have seen it as the actual first plural wife of Joseph Smith. Um, there's different debates about the quality of the evidence uh, regarding that. So, so the question, it raises the larger question with Joseph Smith is, um, to what extent was he actually trying to implement this new principle, or to what extent was he, you know, like many uh, religious leaders throughout history, was he, to what extent was he using his influence and his teaching authority and so forth, um, you know, to have sex with women? That, mm. That's a fair question that is being asked right now. So, so that, that relates to the question, was his relationship with Fanny Alger just an adulterous affair, or was it the first uh, plural marriage in this new system that God was reintroducing. Now, now let's talk about dates for a second. So, um, Emma and Joseph got married in what year, roughly? Yeah, uh, late 1820s, um, 26, 7, 8 in there. I'm not quite sure the exact date. And the Fanny Alger incident was 1833, and... S- and yet polygamy, or as Joseph called it, plural marriage, plural marriage wasn't officially a thing yet until what year? Well, again, this is debated, depends on your perspective. Mm. So there is a, it became official when a revelation, which is now known as section 132 of the Doctrine and Covenants, was, was um, made public and included in their canon, in this, in this scriptural book, as they see it, called the Doctrine and Covenants. Now, some people believe that the Doctrine and Covenants was written as early as 1831. Hmm. Others believe that it was written in the 1840s when Joseph Smith was marrying um, many women. Over a course of, of three or four years, he's really... Uh, he, and that's when he did most of his, his sealings to these other women, and it, it was written at that point in time in part to convince his wife to permit, the, um, or to look the other way at least, on these plural marriages. But that revelation wasn't made public until 1852. And so there's mm. some vagueness about um, really when and under what circumstances this revelation was given, and um, and so its relationship to to his practices that's not that's an open question. But for sure, the Fanny Alger incident in 1833. Uh, again, Joseph might have 
and this might have been a little bit redactive, but Joseph certainly maybe said that this was God's will, but some of the people closest to him, like you said, Ross, just saw it as adultery. And these are some names that some Mormons would probably even understand. Names like Emma Smith, everyone would know that name, yeah. his wife. She she saw it originally as adultery. Oliver Cowdery and Martin Harris, who were those two guys? Because they, they were guys that you would say were on Joseph's side, right? They would They thought of Joseph as a prophet, but yet they saw this as adultery? Right. Those are two pretty prominent names in the early history of the church. Oliver Cowdery was Joseph's misscribe for most of the um, recording of the Book of Mormon. Martin Harris mortgaged his farm to fund the Book of Mormon, and both of them are included among the initial witnesses of the Book of Mormon. So they're they're in the kind of the Mount Rushmore of early Mormonism. Now Oliver Cowdery was ultimately um, dismissed from the church. Now he made a comeback later on. But scholars believe that a big part of his leaving uh, um, the, of the Mormon Church at that time was his um, opposition to Joseph Smith on this on the matter of Fanny Alger. Hmm. Okay, so we've got up up until this point. Where are we now in Kirtland, Ohio, in eighteen thirty three? Yeah, Kirtland, Ohio, and um, soon after that, they go to Missouri. Then they move to Missouri. Then they move to Nauvoo. And now let's pick it up again in Nauvoo, and this is in, this would be in the years of 1841 and 1844. And I think the thing that's interesting here is that plural marriage in Nauvoo was practiced entirely in secrecy. So this still wasn't a thing that that uh, the public would have understood as polygamy, but probably even some of the rank and file Mormons wouldn't have been read into this entirely. Some estimates believe that there was probably maybe a hundred people who were initiated into the secret of polygamy during those years. By the way, there's some, a couple of scholars who, who would include one woman in, in 1838 as a plural wife of Joseph Smith. But again, it, the documentation is lacking, so that's not definitive. But it starts in earnest in the Nauvoo years in the early half of the 1840s, where, where most of these... F- Roughly 45 or so uh, plural marriages took place during that time. Okay, so let's let's list out list list off some of Joseph Smith's wives that we know now, and and, the, and these are even the even Mormon scholars would admit that this is true. Would even because I I know that if, yeah. up until somewhat recently the Mormons the the official stance of the mainline Mormon Church was that Joseph Smith didn't have multiple ri- wives. Do I have that right? Well, when I was growing up in the LDS church, um, that was years and years and years ago, but at that point in time, it, it was denied. It was disavowed. So it was disavowed, let's say, 30, 40 years ago. We're ta- it's disavowed among mainline Mormons, but today they won't disavow it, right? Today, the Mormon right. church admits there's ample evidence this is true, that Smith really did have these secret wives and plural marriage was a thing in the 1840s. Right, and in the past episodes, we've we've referred to the Gospel Topics essays, and Mm. there is a Gospel Topics essay that deals specifically with the practice of polygamy in the Nauvoo period, and so that's so the the LDS Church has has said, yeah, and then they try to explain it from their point of view in that in Mm -hmm. that essay, but they don't no, no any longer deny it. 
Okay, so here were some of Smith's wives. We know that two of them were under 14 yeah, years of I mean, age. That, and that, that seems kind of, a, that seems to us like it seems predatory, right? It seems like now legally in the state of Illinois, a woman uh, could be married at age 14. So pra- marriage practices are different. But from our perspective, that, that seems like, um, you know, something that mm, we, we wouldn't really look kindly on it today. And so it raises a lot of questions about, um, about what's going on with Joseph Smith in, in his mind. The interesting okay. thing is, yeah, uh, yeah, and let, me just, let me just add, I mean, moving on, I guess, from that, um, the interesting, really interesting thing to me about um, Joseph Smith's polygamy is that eight of the women that he was uh, sealed to as plural wives were already married to other men. So that's a that's an odd kind of a phenomenon. I think it's also interesting that some of these wives were pairs of sisters, and in some cases even a mother and a daughter. And this is where we're starting to, it's starting to hit close to home with some of the fundamentalist practices today that exist for which some of these leaders are in prison, right? Is that they're doing right. things that we would clearly say this isn't right, right? This isn't this isn't appropriate. This isn't right. This is predatory more than anything else. Right, exactly, and um, yeah, and so these are practices again. We see um, in the in the fundamentalist community nowadays of of young women uh, at early age being married off to older men, and we see some of these. Uh, you know, uh, family type relationships, sisters, and et cetera. And it, yeah, it just it's uh, it seems strange and and wrong from our perspective today, for sure. Yeah, we're trying to be measured here because we don't want to offend um, Mormons who see Joseph Smith as their prophet. But I, you know, if I if I were to be completely honest, like this is this would anger me as a father, as a man, as a follower of Jesus, like this. This angers me because it does see, I don't see any other way really to view this. In fact, I always invite my Mormon friends to help me understand this differently. You know, Absolutely. If, I, if, I'm, if I'm seeing this wrong, help me to see this in the appropriate way. I have a good friend who's in the Mormon church whose wife was abused, sexually abused by her dad, who was a bishop. And I'm helping him think this through and praying with him about this and giving him some counsel and he didn't, he didn't see the connection, sort of the legacy, I feel like, that this part of the story leaves for modern-day Mormonism, and not, not just the fundamentalists. Clearly, that's involved there, but I, I, I even think that there's some, sadly, there's a legacy that's left behind because of the way Mormons view this and somehow spin this to justify what was going on back then. Yeah, I think you can. I think don't think it's unfair to connect the dots in that way. I think that's at least a reasonable question that has to be asked about what is the legacy um, within the relationship between men and women, you know, and sexual relationships in general mm-hmm. from that those early practices. That's a great question. Okay, so in either case, Ross. So some key leaders, as you said, were initiated into this practice. It was kind of a loyalty test for some of them. They were 
initiated into sort of a higher level, I, I'm presuming of higher level of leadership. Maybe some of these are, you know, the quorum and people like that, the apostles in the quorum. And so we're, we're estimating about 100 people, 100 men, of course, were initiated into this before Smith's death, death even though he was actually still, it was still a secretive thing at this point. Yeah, maybe 100 include, would include men and women, hard to tell. We don't really know. We do have some, again, some journal records and other other um, documentation that describes as some of it after the fact, of course, looking back from LDS leaders looking back at how uh, Joseph Smith comes to um, Heber Kimball, for example, who was an apostle, and says, you know, um, you need to you need to let me be sealed to your wife, Violet. And he didn't want to, and she didn't want to, and Joseph Smith, you know, kind of really, in in modern terms, we would say that he put on this spiritual manipulation and used his his uh, spiritual authority and power to say, well, you know, if you don't do it, then, then God's not going to bless you, and if you do it, you'll be blessed, and just trust me, because I'm speaking for God, and do it. And um, it was that sort of thing, where he, he used that to fortify the loyalty of his close followers and to kind of include them into this inner circle, which, you know, the inner circle idea in human affairs has always been a powerful drawing force for people to say, yeah, I will do what I need to do to be in the inner circle. And I think that psychology is at play here a little bit too. Hmm. Okay, so what kind of a reaction then did, did Joseph Smith and some of these other leaders of Mormons what kind of reaction did they get in Nauvoo? Because ultimately, this is one of the things that really led to his his death, right? Yeah, it, it absolutely directly to it. So words start to get out. We know from you know human nature. We know from politics and everything. You can't keep everything a secret forever. And so you know, word starts to leak out, and there's some opposition. Interesting things happen in Nauvoo. So number one, there's a leader who's the mayor of uh, of, of Nauvoo for a, at a time at a certain time. Um, John C. Bennett, he starts to, the best I can understand the evidence, he starts to tell people that Joseph Smith is creating this, this system that was, they would call in those days spiritual wifery. And apparently Bennett was um, taking advantage of that to try to seduce women into relationships with him. So kind of independent of Joseph Smith and, and his authority. And so that became scandalous, and Bennett was a big critic of... He was excommunicated, left Nauvoo, was a big critic of Joseph Smith. But then there was another guy named William Law, who I, I find him actually to be a heroic figure, because he, he was loyal to Joseph Smith. He really believed that this was the restoration of original Christianity and as a leader. But, but when he found out about polygamy, he went to Joseph Smith, and he, and he, and he told him to stop. And, of course, Joseph Smith didn't, so William Law and a couple of others started a newspaper called the Nauvoo Expositor. As you can imagine from the title, their goal was to expose these secret practices and call Joseph Smith to account for them. Well, they only published one edition. As soon as it hit the streets, the the city of Nauvoo, with Joseph Smith as the leader, um, declared that the paper was a public nuisance and that it ought to be destroyed. So it was destroyed, and that is what really led to the uproar that ultimately resulted in Joseph Smith being arrested and and hauled off for trial. 
But as he was being taken away to trial, that's when he was attacked by the mob and, and was killed. So there's a definite chain of events there. Okay, so Smith dies in Nauvoo, and then Brigham Young is going to be the next leader, and, and in some ways a more suitable leader, I think, for the next part of the story of Mormonism, really. I think he was a, I, I guess you could probably say he was a, he was a better leader, right, in a sense, depending on how you define leadership. He was a good organizer, mm-hmm. and um, you know he was able to accomplish what, a really difficult task of keeping these, these, this believing community together and finding a new home for them as they could really no longer live in Illinois. And Brigham Young learned from the errors of Joseph Smith, and he joins William Law and, and says that, that plural marriage is wrong, and, we're, and now we have uh, modern-day Mormons. But no, actually, that's not what happens. Yeah, not exactly. Brigham Young was initiated into polygamy while Joseph Smith was alive. So he was a believer. He was a true believer in plural marriage. And in, if anything, he brought it to a whole new level, right? Joseph Smith, what Joseph Smith started in secret, we're going to see under Brigham Young eventually for various reasons. Um, Brigham Young is actually able to bring it out into the open. And that's really it. We're going to come into the heyday of polygamy, but really it's Utah polygamy. Yeah, because once they moved to Utah, then they were isolated from the rest of America, living, you know, sort of, they had people passing through on their way west, but by and large, they became uh, pretty self-autonomous, self-governing within limits, but, you know, out there in Utah, now far, far away from the east where most Americans lived, uh, they could do what kind of whatever they wanted to do, and so they had the freedom to come out into the open with polygamy uh, after they had been in Utah for about five years then they ran it up the flagpole, and it became known that many of these leaders had been uh, initiated into polygamy, and it began to become, you know, really a thing out in the open uh, for the next probably about 40 years. Okay, so let's do some dates here. Let's talk about some dates. So we have um, Joseph Smith dies in 1844 in Nauvoo. Brigham Young didn't lead, lead them to Utah until 1846, a couple of years later. So 46 to 47 is when they, they head out to Utah. Polygamy is publicly announced in 1852. And as you mentioned, that's section 132 of the Doctrine and Covenants. Anyone who wants to check up on it, that was when it was the written revelation was published. Okay, so 1852 is when it's publicly announced. So again, if you just if we go just go back and look at the dates, 1833 is when Fanny Alger comes into the picture, 1852. So we're talking a good almost 20 years that essentially it was practiced in private, in secret, and then finally, probably in part, Ross, because not to you know take away from the spiritual answer that the Mormons would give, but probably in part because they're in Utah, they're actually not in America in the US anymore. Utah wasn't a part of the United States, so they could kind of do what they wanted at this point in history. Right. Now Utah became a territory of the United States about a year after the Mormons moved in. So that was ironic. Um but they were trying to flee America and suddenly boom, they find themselves back in America in a sense, at least as a territory, but it was isolated. And Joseph and uh, uh, Brigham Young uh, had a lot of authority as the governor of the territory. And um, 
you know, again, they're far, far away from uh, American authorities, so they could, they were, they had freedom to practice, and and honestly, um, it became pretty normative for the higher up leaders of Mormonism, although it was never a majority that practiced polygamy in Utah in those years. Now we'll get into all this, but you know, this is really where okay, so when Utah becomes a territory of the U.S. Essentially now Brigham Young and his polygamist friends are sort of on the clock because at some point, at some point, this is going to lead to the end of the of polygamy because because the U.S. government steps in. We'll get to that. But before we do, Ross, let's, let's take a snapshot of Brigham Young's polygamy practice, right? So Joseph Smith had, what did we say? He had... Um, 30-ish, 40-ish? Up to 49, up to 49, depends on... Up to 49 wives. Brigham Young didn't have to be so secretive, so I think we can can nail that down a little bit better. He had 51 to 56 wives and 56 children. Right, and so, because he was able to live in the open. Now, many of these wives, to be honest, to be fair, many of them never lived with him as a wife. Some were sealed only for eternity, and and others were married to him, sort of uh, in a sense, kind of like welfare case. So he would there may be an elderly widow that he would marry to bring under her under his care and protection of his household, and she would maybe live with the other wives, or some of them didn't even live. Some of them lived in different places. Twenty of them ended up divorcing him over time. Um, but so there, so not all of them did he live with in a husband-wife traditional husband-wife type relationship. But many of them, many of them he did. As you see, he had fifty-six children, so he's consummating uh, many of these marriage relationships. And if you visit Salt Lake City today, you can see Brigham Young's historic home right next door to the to the Salt Lake Temple, and. I, Ross, that's just always so interesting to me that that's such a landmark for them, and it really is a sort of a tribute to polygamy, isn't it? It really is. I mean, there's two homes there. One's called the Lion House. One's called the Beehive House. So imagine the implications of the Beehive House. You've got you know um, all kinds of people living there, and you have you have one in this case not a queen but a king. And uh, and not a bunch of drones, but instead a bunch of women and children who are living there in that place um, as Brigham Young's family. Okay, now it wasn't just Brigham Young at this point. So this is now in that kind of the kind of the heyday of Mormonism or of, of polygamy in Mormonism. So this was about thirty or forty years, right, from the time they got to well, you'll see the time they got there to Utah till the you know. 1882-ish, and we'll, we'll save that for just a second. But let's just take a little snapshot, Ross, at some of the others then. What, what, like, was this a majority practice then in Utah? Like, if you were a Mormon guy, a Mormon man at this point in history living in Utah, did that mean that, that you probably had multiple wives? Well, probably not. Um, it, it varied from place to place. A couple of things, a couple of misconceptions not everybody practiced it. And so, for example, near where I live in Weber County, in 1880, at the heyday of polygamy, only less than 10% of families were polygamous. Now, in southern Utah, in St. George, in that time, same time frame, more like 40% 
were practicing polygamy. And then we think of polygamy, we think of Brigham Young with these 50 plus wives, but most men who practiced polygamy had two wives. It's probably an economic burden to sustain a large family, even though there, a lot of that might be agricultural labor for you or whatever, but it's also a status issue. And so if you were a higher up leader, you, had, you were higher up in the pecking order of being able to dictate, you know, uh, the women who were available to you to marry. Hmm. Okay, so this is, things are going great. If you have multiple wives, if, especially if you're a, in a key leadership position, you have multiple wives, probably the wealthier you are, you probably tend to have mo more wives. Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden, the end of polygamy is near. And let's kind of back up to, and we're, we're going to talk a little bit about what happened. There were some there were some important acts of the U.S. government in the 1880s. But before we even talk about that, Ross, how did the rest of the U.S. view this? Like, what, what did the average American think about the ones who knew about this? What did they think about this? Yeah, it was scandalous. Um, you know, so here you have the announcement in 1852, and then in the very next general election... Um, 1856, for example, the Republican Party ran on a platform of opposition to what they called the twin relics of barbarism, polygamy and slavery. And so there's a huge popular sentiment against polygamy. And as early as 1862, Congress is trying to um, make it prohibit it, make it illegal, put penalties in place that would... Um, shut down polygamy. Well, the Civil War got in the way, so you know the government was preoccupied with fighting a, a war and then, and then reconstituting the nation after the war. So it wasn't until quite a bit later that some of the government actions against polygamy began to uh, ramp up and began to take effect. Okay, so there are two two acts, and let me read them off to you. People can go research these on your own, but Ross, explain these. In 1882, there was the Edmonds Act, and then in 1887, there was the Edmonds-Tucker Act. Uh, all the way back in 1862, polygamy had been declared illegal, but the problem was enforcing it. And so in the, 1882, the Edmonds Act probably had the most teeth in it so far over all the, these years of trying to do something about it. And if a person was convicted of polygamy, they were ta their, their right to vote was taken away. They could not serve in any kind of a public office. You know, so they were trying to undermine the influence of polygamists in the Utah government and, and take it down. Well, there was a lot of loopholes in that. So five years later, the Edmonds-Tucker Act was passed to try to close some of the loopholes. Years ago, one of the earlier bills had already um, disincorporated the LDS church, but that didn't have any teeth. The Edmonds-Tucker Act, the, why that one made a big difference in 1887 was it froze the church's assets. Mm. And so kind of like uh, the government does with terrorist organizations or whatever around the world now, they'll just freeze their assets and so they don't have access to their, to their funds. And so the LDS church did not have the means to survive as an institution from that point on. Now, along the way, other things were happening, too, that these, these government um, provisions were providing for the arrest um, of polygamists or 
wives could be forced to be witnesses in the court of law against their husband, uh, polygamous wives. And so everybody goes underground. Uh, polygamists, by and large, uh, go into hiding or leave the country to other places, to Mexico, to Canada, to try to avoid arrest or to try to avoid being forced to testify. Until finally in 1890, we have something called the Manifesto. And this was uh, the new LDS president at the time, Wilford Woodruff. This is where he comes out with a new, again, what they called a manifesto. But explain, explain what this really was, how they viewed this at the time in 1890, and what exactly did it say? Yeah, to set that up, John Taylor, who was the successor to Brigham Young, John Taylor actually died while he was in hiding. Um, he was a polygamist, so he's in hiding, and he was very much in favor of uh, standing firm to the end and, and, and rest- uh, keeping polygamy, the principle as it's called, uh, hanging on to that as a church. Well, he, he, he died, and shortly after that, well, as Wilford Woodruff comes into power, the church's policy changed. The, the, the manifesto, there's two different perspectives on the manifesto. Faithful Latter-day Saints will look at that and say that Wilford Woodruff is praying for God to reveal to him what he's supposed to do in this crisis. And so they will look at the manifesto as a revelation, even though it doesn't carry the form of other, other kinds of LDS scripture. Um, it, doesn't, it doesn't say, thus says the Lord, or it doesn't put it into uh, the words of God into first person. In, instead, Wilford Woodruff he specifically says that he advises the Latter-day Saints to refrain from contracting any marriages forbidden by the law of the land. So it comes across not as an authoritative end of polygamy, but it comes across um, as a pragmatic approach to say, well, I'm going to kind of give you, I'm going to give you enough to get the government off our back. So that's the, so the perspective of the faithful would be this is, this is a revelation from God. Now, let's looking back, the perspective of the skeptics might be able to say, well, Wilford Woodruff was just trying to survive, and so he took some half measures. In fact, the reality was is that polygamists, after the manifesto, continued to practice polygamy, and, and the church did not do anything for quite some time to, um, to stop them from doing that. Until the second manifesto. Okay, so the first manifesto, or just the manifesto, was 1890. 14 years later, 1904, comes the second manifesto. And this really was kind of of the, the end of the matter, right, as far as mainstream Mormons are concerned. Yeah, this is the end. Because, so, you know, first of all, all the LDS leaders who were polygamists at the, when the manifesto came, they continued to live with their wives in polygamous relationships for the rest of their lives. Even after the Second Manifesto, they continued to, to live. But, but, and, and we have evidence that even new plural marriages were still being um, solemnized after the Manifesto. The Second Manifesto, I guess, it, you know, there's other trouble. There's other problems. There, there was a senator from Utah that the, that the Senate refused to seat him because polygamy was still being practiced even though that particular senator, his name is Reed Smoot, was a monogamist. But polygamous was, polygamy was still being practiced, and, and, and the nation was going like, wow, what's up with that? 
And so eventually it comes to the point where the church says, we've got to make a break. And so they began excommunicating people who did not comply, including two members of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles. One was disfellowshipped, one was excommunicated because they continued to advocate for polygamy. Um, and so that really is a turning point that changed the practice churchwide. Well, yeah, and it's also interesting to note that the first LDS president who was not a polygamist was George Albert Smith, and that was in 1945. That's pretty crazy. In 1945, right. that was the first time that the LDS president wasn't actually a polygamist. Right. So that, that's, that is not that long ago that polygamy was still really a thing in mainstream Mormonism in some form or another. But really where polygamy survived was in what, again, what we called at the beginning the fundamentalist movement. So Ross, explain that, because really once they sort of, once the Second Manifesto came out, that's really where the second, or the, the fundamentalist movement really kind of got its legs, right? Right. So there were a lot of people who, who felt like, this is given by God, for, from God by revelation. It's still... Section 132 is still in the LDS scriptures. And so they're feeling like, well, the church has caved. They capitulated to government pressure. Um, and, and so they, the church has become uh, unfaithful or apostate because it gave up on this important revealed principle. So they said, we got to keep doing it no matter what it costs. And so it continued, the practice continued in secret and isolation. Now the mainstream LDS church will excommunicate anybody now who they find practicing polygamy who's a member. So it goes back to John Taylor, and John Taylor, who was a staunch advocate, these polygamist groups and leaders, they banded together at around 1930s to kind of create a new polygamist network. And, and they would, they'd argued that John Taylor had actually ordained in secret one of their leaders to continue polygamy. Because John Taylor could see it all going down. And as the president of the church, he said, we're going to make an alternative way for polygamy to survive. Now, whether that's true or not, who knows? It's part of the lore of the fundamentalist groups. And it's where they look to for the authorization to say that, look, the, the third president of the church, the prophet John Taylor, is, is our source of authority. And the rest of the mainstream church has gone astray. So now, in essence, Ross, do I have this right, that there are essentially kind of some splinter groups, sort of fundamentalist splinter groups. They have some of those, some of these leaders that they would say, this is the real prophet, right? So, yeah. so at John Taylor, the, the, you know, the, the mainline church took this, was it Wood, Woodruff? Is that who the prophet was at that point? Wood, uh, Wilford Woodruff came after John Taylor in the sort of traditional succession process, right? But then, but the fundamentalists would say, no, we actually think the real prophet is this other guy and this other guy. And so several of these other leaders, what was it by the 1930s then, some of these leading polygamists come together and kind of form this loose confederation to keep polygamy grow, going. Right. And, and then what has happened since in polygamy is that there have been all these splinter movements and you, there have been disputes about authority. And one guy rises up and claims to be the prophet. And if he gets some enough followers, then he'll depose the previous prophet. And so now that there's, there's several different groups that um, all kind of go back to the same family tree, but they pursue different pathways along the way. And at any given moment, a polygamous leader might emerge and say, hey, I had a revelation. 
God called me to be the successor, and he could gather people around himself. Kind of like Joseph Smith did in the first place. Well, exactly. It was really more in keeping with Joseph Smith's original spirit. But the irony of it all, Ross, is that Joseph Smith, one of the reasons he said that Christianity was wrong was because there were so many denominations. And now we have all these, in, in, in short order, we have all these splinter groups, essentially, of Joseph Smith's restoration of the true gospel in, in his words. Right. Absolutely. So, so there's a number of groups that still maintain that they're the true uh, successors. The mainstream LDS church, as we've said before, um, they'll excommunicate those. They don't practice it. Although they didn't really end it, in a sense, they only suspended it. Because, again, it's still authorized as an everlasting covenant in their scripture. There was no divine revelation really saying, don't ever, don't do this anymore. And, and actually, in mainstream Mormonism, it's still acknowledged as an eternal principle that you could be a polygamist in heaven. You could be sealed to more than one woman, not maybe for this life, not at the same time, but in, in eternity... They, they believe that polygamy is still a thing in the life to come. Okay, well, we've covered a lot of ground, but we, we really have to end this episode, Ross, by giving a biblical response to polygamy, right? This whole thing started because Joseph Smith said, hey, what gives? There's polygamy in the Old Testament. Why don't we have polygamy today? And so he, he, is, he essentially sort of restored polygamy. And what's wrong with that from a biblical point of view? Doesn't he have a point? Well, superficially, you could say that perhaps he does. I mean, there certainly are examples, especially in the Old Testament, of prophets and leaders and so forth. We mentioned at the beginning Abraham, um, there's King David, there's certainly Solomon. But part of Joseph Smith's explanation of this, he says that sometimes it's commanded by God. And it's commanded by God for the main purpose of raising up godly offspring. Well... In, in the Bible, it's never commanded by God. It's allowed by God early on, as, but as, as God continues to reveal himself over time, the idea of polygamy begins to die out because God never did command it. And um, actually, if you look at polygamy in the Old Testament, every single time that polygamy is practiced, it leads to something bad. It leads to bad fruit, bad results. Abraham, you see these conflict between Sarah and Hagar, and he has a child with Hagar, and there's conflict between Ishmael and Isaac and Solomon. It actually says in 1 Kings chapter 11 that his many wives turned his heart away from God. And so every time you see polygamy, it's never, it's never depicted as a good thing. And in fact, in Deuteronomy 17, 17, it's strictly forbidden for Israel's kings, which is different from... Uh, sort of the way it worked practically in the heyday of Mormonism, right? That the that the, all the top leaders were, really were encouraged to have multiple wives, and they're the ones that really practiced it the most. But but Ross, really, I think the biggest thing around all this is it's it's contrary to the order of creation in Genesis two: one man, one woman united. That's really the commandment when God tells them to be fruitful and multiply. It's in the context of one man one woman united uh, till death do them part, right, in, mm -hmm. in this world. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and then building on that fundamental concept, you see that played out in the New Testament considerably, where that becomes the norm. 
of, of human marriage, one man, one woman, and, and it, he said he'll, he'll be united to his wife. I don't know how, I don't know how a man, one man is united fully to a, a number of different women. He'd ha, he could only be partially united. He, he can't give ultimate loyalty to any one of them. But so and even in the Old Testament, you still see this model. God presents himself as the, the husband and Israel as his spouse. And so God, God charges Israel with adultery, in a sense, because they've gone after other gods and other idols, and the metaphor he uses to talk about that spiritual adultery is marriage. So God chose only one nation. He chose Israel. God had only one wife, so to speak. And in the New Testament, the church is seen as the bride of Christ. And now, there's only, Christ only has one bride, the church. And so these, these different metaphors point to the ideal of, of a monogamous relationship between a man and a wife. So that is a short history of polygamy in the LDS Church. And again, if you want to learn more about this or check out our other episodes and topics to include discussion questions so you can talk about this, maybe with a Mormon friend, maybe with your family, maybe with your spouse. We know that there are listeners who are investigating their Mormon roots, and this is one of those topics probably that just hasn't sat very well with you. We encourage you to talk about it and use the resources that we have online at PursueGod.org forward slash Mormonism, and we'll see you next time. Hey listeners, this is Brian Dwyer reminding you to rate this show on your favorite podcast app. That really does help us when you do that. That way more people can discover this podcast and start listening. And also, don't forget to share the podcast with a friend.